Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. When I uh, came downstairs, my kids go, is that your preaching jacket? I said, well, Uncle Robert always wears a suit on Easter. Why can't I? Uh, good morning. We'll let these rascals get out of here. It's good to see you. My name is Jesse Horney, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, which is exciting because it means later today you can say, Happy Easter, Pastor Horney. And that's going to bless both of us because you don't get to say that very often. It's sort of a sacred context. But a bum. <laughs> Sorry. That's the last joke, I swear. Um, a lot of people go to church on Easter who don't normally attend church, which I think is crazy. <laughs> like, I understand going to church on Christmas because we've sort of spit shined that part. <laughs> we've uh, made Jesus' birth really cozy and made Mary a saint. We made the angels more angelic, less terrifying. Uh, we dress up kids like barn animals and make them sing, for goodness sakes. <laughs> it's an easy entry point for church. So I understand giving in when your family makes you come to church on East or on Christmas, but um, the Easter story is insane. So, I mean, welcome. I'm glad you're here, but I just want to be really clear that you do know that today we're celebrating a Jewish man who claimed to be God was killed in a gruesome political death, after which his followers claim he came back to life, an event which literally split history in two. And we're still talking about 2,000 years later, and not only are we celebrating this miracle that we believe in, but we're also believing that because he did that, we're forgiven of everything we've done wrong, past, present, or future, and that we get to participate in a new kingdom coming to earth. Totally normal stuff. <laughs> Happy Easter. <laughs> We're glad you're here. There's been a few times in my own life when the story of Jesus, which is the basis of my faith, which is the basis of my entire life, has felt difficult to believe, like ludicrous even. Uh, but nothing will make you think harder about what you believe, especially the impossible parts of this story, than trying to explain it to your kids. <laughs> Not that my kids don't believe me when I tell them about it. They're still young enough to think that my word is gold. But I'm deeply aware of how fantastic this all sounds when you say it out loud. And um, I'll be 37 on Tuesday, which means that I'm old enough to have seen lots of friends leave the faith that we grew up in together because it just didn't make sense to them. So I take this really seriously. And even when I'm just over here crying at the part uh, when Jesus comes back to life and tells the women first, because you know I love that part. 
I don't take any of it lightly. And so um, today we're actually going to look at a really tiny part of this story, one that I've actually never really noticed before, but that I think is this small glimpse into a cosmic redemption story as a whole. So I'm going to set the scene for you a little bit in case you're unfamiliar, but we're in the ancient Near East, which um, is located like where modern day Israel is now in the Levant, this little tiny section of land right above Africa, where Jesus of Nazareth was born to human parents. That's a historical fact. He's a historical figure. Um, and he lives this really ordinary life for about 30 years. And then he kind of bursts onto the scene in and around Jerusalem as a rabbi, which isn't as strange things. There were lots of rabbis. The rabbis would gather people to follow them as their students. Jesus does the same thing. He gathers these 12 people to follow him. And then he has a few short years of being a rabbi who taught a lot of people, performed a lot of miracles, and made a lot of people really, really mad. And eventually they find a way to have him killed by crucifixion, which feels really weird to us, but was not like a special thing just for Jesus. It's a regular occurrence in like under the Pax Romana. This is like their version of peace is to crucify political prisoners and thieves and slaves. Um, he wasn't even the only one being crucified that day. It wasn't a special thing for him. It was just how they killed him. So Jesus joins the ranks of those killed on the cross, except, and this is where we start, according to the stories, he doesn't stay dead. He's killed on a Friday, and then on Sunday, his friends go to visit the tomb, only to find it empty. He meets his friend Mary on the road, and she goes, and as the first evangelist tells the people, he's not there, he is risen. Death has been defeated once and for all, and everything was about to change. I've read the story of Jesus' life a lot of times, but this year, as I read it again, preparing for today, I was really struck by, in that last week, especially of Jesus' life before he's killed, like the weight of the heartache and disappointment. Like even before he's taken prisoner and beat, and killed. There's so much sadness in that last week because it's just so obvious that the disciples have no idea what's going on. And they're really just bumbling through this time with him like they're blindfolded. They really don't know what's about to happen. There's 12 disciples, but who would you say is most um, famous in the Easter story? Whose name do you know? You can say it. This We talk in this church out loud. You can tell me. Who was it? Yeah, we're going to go with Judas. Who doesn't love a good Easter sermon about Judas? Am I right? Let's get into it. Yeah, uh, Judas's name has become synonymous with betrayal and greed. We use it just in everyday language, even if we don't follow this story. You're, a Judas Iscariot is someone who betrays someone. And the angry religious leaders had exactly what they needed in Judas. His greed gave him reason enough to betray Jesus. And all he asked for was 30 pieces of silver to hand over this friend that he had spent the last few years following everywhere. 30 pieces of silver. He participated in a death sentence for the equivalent of a couple hundred dollars in today's money. I'm going to read you that little part of the story. I think it's a slide. 
Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and since they're Jewish, they observe this, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people, the people who had gathered and were following him, these crowds. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Imagine that meeting. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So Judas gets what he wants. Um, In these stories, he's never really liked how Jesus handles money or does business. Judas wants fat accounts and a full ledger. And he especially wants a generosity that has a long-term plan for success. And this betrayal reeks of this petty revenge on some level because Judas finally gets to control the money. And he agrees to hand Jesus over for this small sum. And when the time is right, he leads the priests and the elders right to him. And he kisses him on the cheek. And he hands his friend over to be killed. And after a sham trial, Jesus is condemned to die that gruesome death on a cross that the Romans had perfected. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Here's a part I'd never noticed before. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, well, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners, and that's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Reading this little piece of Judas's story was such a gut punch to me. There's so much heartbreak here, so much tragedy. He ends up taking his own life. But the real heartache I imagine in this scene is that Judas, filled with desperate remorse, went to the wrong people in the wrong place. He thought he could make things right by giving back the money, like that would reverse his actions somehow. So he went to the people in power and asked them to help them, which they couldn't do and they wouldn't do. And when that didn't work, he panicked because the weight of what he had done was crushing him. And I just am, like I, that scene is so visceral to me, that he walks into the temple court. I don't know why he didn't understand that Jesus was going to be killed, like what he thought they were going to do with him. Maybe he really didn't know. I don't know. But whatever decision has been made, now Judas is filled with this sickness, like, You know that feeling in your stomach, you have done something wrong. So he goes to the temple and he he throws these coins and and he shouts, (laughs) you know, take the money back, take it back. 
And his words just echo in the silence of the leaders. He has these 30 silver coins, which at that point probably feel feel like an anvil in his hands, a weight he cannot bear. So he throws them, and they clatter across the floor, rolling everywhere. You know, I'm sure the whole place just comes to a stop, and everyone's staring at this thing that's happening, and no one does a single thing to help him. The chief priests and the elders couldn't have cared less. They got what they want. What's it to us, they said. That's your responsibility. There's one person who could have forgiven Judas. One conversation he needed to have. One encounter that would have changed everything for him, that literally would have saved his life. But instead of trying to find Jesus, he went to the religious leaders. And when they couldn't give him the peace that he so desperately wanted, he took matters into his own hands and got rid of the pain the only way he knew how, which was to end his life. That, I mean, that's the only thing he thought would take care of what he was feeling in his body, would somehow be payment for what he'd done to Jesus. And it really breaks my heart to read this part of the story because it makes me wonder, in our desperation, where do we go? Who do we think can handle our pain, our guilt, our remorse, our fear, and our doubt? Where's your temple? Where have you thrown your coins in despair? We might not have 30 pieces of silver clanking around in our pockets with the weight of our decisions, but we are yelling at our kids and just feeling so sad when we see the crushed look on their faces. And we're promising not to work overtime another weekend because we know that it's not good for us just as soon as we pay off those credit cards. And we're watching our friends get divorced and telling ourselves that we're better than that even as we slowly let our marriage fall apart. We're collapsing on the couch at night after another (laughs) fight with impossible decisions with our teenagers just wondering where it all went wrong from the babies that we once held. We're slamming a laptop shut and swearing we're never going to look at that website again. We're not going to look at those pictures again. This time it's different. And we want to change. So we read self-help books, spirituality books, And we believe the lie that we can fix all of this if we just try harder. We're believing the same lie that Judas believed, that we can find peace without going to Jesus. But here's the really good news. When we come with our heaps of trouble and our problems, or even just the million little small decisions that we wish we hadn't made, Jesus doesn't say, what's your sin and regret to me? Jesus says the opposite of what the religious leaders say. Jesus says, guess what? It's my responsibility now. Give it to me. There's nothing you've done that's too much for me. I'm not even mad you're here. I'm I'm so happy. Please put it in my hands. I'm going to the cross and bearing the weight of your pain because I know that it would crush you just like it did to Judas. 
And I will not let that happen without a fight. That's what Jesus says to us. Jesus' compassion and love are a physical manifestation of the force of love, the love of a good father who holds a whole universe together, who pours oceans that we can't even get to the bottom of, and galaxies that are continuing to expand, and miracle babies knit together in the wombs of people who prayed for them for so long. This is a God who repairs what is broken. Jesus suffered and Jesus faced death and Jesus rose again and overturned the power of death in the universe. Jesus's love is the antidote to humanity's pain. Jesus's love is arms stretched wide saying, please come to me, not turning his back and saying, that's your problem now. This... um I'm going to read this slide, Randy. The passionately loving Christ, the persecuted Christ, the lonely Christ, the Christ despairing over God's silence, the Christ who in dying was so totally forsaken for us and for our sakes is like the brother or the friend to whom one can confide everything because he knows everything and he's suffered everything that can happen to us and more. You know what Judas missed out on most of all? He didn't get to see Sunday morning. He thought that what he'd done was irreversible. That's why he ended his life. That's what he believed. He didn't get to see the tomb empty. The dark of Friday was too much for him, and he missed out on the glory of the Sunday morning miracle when the universal march towards death and destruction came to a screeching halt, and Jesus led the triumphant procession of eternal life for all who call on him and follow him. And listen, if any part of this story is metaphorical or exaggerated or myth, then we should leave. There's no point to being here if the whole thing isn't true. We should just stay on our own path and do things our own way and be our own saviors and build our own gods because inherent in this story is a decision. Will we believe and go to Jesus to save us or do we think we can do it ourselves and our way? Where are we throwing our silver? And I'm asking because there's no one else coming to save us. People will keep failing you. Life will keep surprising you. You will disappoint yourself and the people you love again and again and again. There's so many reasons that I've dedicated my life to Jesus and to following his way. But one of the main reasons is that I just continually come to the end of myself. I want to change, but I don't. Or I try to change, but it doesn't last. I know that I know that I know that I cannot save myself from myself. I can't be the problem and the solution. All right, listen. <laughs> People don't really like the word sin anymore. It's not cool to talk about because it assumes a position of right or wrong. And who are we to say? We just say, you do you, right? <laughs> as long as it's not hurting anybody. And I'm not here to convince you that you've done wrong or that I've done wrong. I certainly don't have to convince you that wrong has been done to you. 
and uh, we don't like to talk about sin, but wow, do we understand shame and guilt and fear. We know how it feels to hurt someone we love. And I don't know about you, but we know how it feels to be hurt, to be forgotten, treated poorly, betrayed. We feel it in our body, this cellular level of injustice and grief. Something is not right, but we're looking in all the wrong places for relief. Whether it's religion in a church or the religion of self, self-help, self-strength, we are asking the world to do for us what it cannot and will not do. This is an astounding story of divine love and sacrifice, a supernatural plot line in which you and I are beloved, sought-after children of a good father. And it's really strange. So I'm going to tell you the same thing that I tell my kids when we talk about Jesus. If you find a person or a place that offers you forgiveness and new life and peace that passes understanding and a love that overwhelms you with the enormity of its scope, then go for it. If you find a story more compelling than God redeeming you and the entirety of humanity, come and tell me about it. But as for me, I have never found peace outside of Jesus. I've never found true rest on my own. And I have never heard a story that made my heart beat with such knowing. I've never found lasting healing and hope anywhere except for the one who created me. Except in Jesus. We're going to sing a song right now. (laughs) And just spend a few minutes trying this on believing that these things really might be true, that Jesus died, that God had a plan to redeem our lives and this whole project of humanity, that Jesus came back to life and invites each one of us to do the same, to wake up, to sit up, and to let the sun warm our faces, to hand over our silver pieces, our regrets and our failings and our fear, and let Jesus hand us peace instead okay friends sunday morning is here and so we have to ask ourselves are we still living like it's thursday night are we stumbling through the dark on our own because finding peace in jesus means drawing near to him it's not a one-time decision it's not an insurance policy against tortured afterlife it's a faith that jesus did what he said he would do and that what he did changed the whole world, and that because Jesus rose from the dead, he continues to change the world. This is your part, one person at a time. When I say we get to live like it's Sunday morning, I mean we get to turn our face towards the sun and declare that the tomb is empty and that any dead places in us can be brought back to life too by the love and the power of a good and kind and wise and everlasting Savior. That for you. Judas gave up on Thursday. He didn't get to see Sunday, but we get to be Sunday people. We get to be people who say, I want to be close to Jesus. And then do it together. We don't have to do it alone. Wherever you're at on that journey, on that road, 
I'm just inviting you to do what I'm doing, which is turning towards Jesus again today, or maybe for the first time. And let yourself be close to the one who gave it all to be close to you. You are so loved. I know what I feel even looking out at you, and I know so many of you, and it's like unbridled affection. I have to hold myself back around you. I kiss you guys all the time. I love you so, so much. It's so much more than that. It is, and it's ever expanding. We can't even begin to understand it. So even if the weirdness of this story is a lot to handle today, believe me when I say that you are beloved and that somebody is listening when you speak and that somebody is calling you home. If you don't feel like you're home, don't feel like you've found peace in what you're trying. Follow Jesus. Because gosh, gosh, is he so good to be with. Jesus told his disciples before he died, they were like kind of freaking out at the stuff he was telling them. They just didn't understand what he was saying. He says, I've told you these things that so in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble. Nobody's making promises that troubles disappear today, even Jesus. But then he says, take heart, because I have overcome the world. And any troubles that feel like they're overcoming us have already been defeated. And we're here to do it with you, to walk with Jesus, to face our troubles, and to be people who are changed by his love. We love you guys so much. We're going to sing one last song. Probably a bunch of pitter-pattering feet are going to tumble in here in a few minutes. And then I'll bless you before we go, and we'll head outside together. Okay, let me pray for you. God, thank you that, uh, first of all, we don't have to do anything to save ourselves. There's not a checklist. Even though we would love to try to fill it out, some of us love checklists. far from you, Jesus. There is no place too far for you to not be waiting for us. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God, because wherever you go, it's filled with light. So may your light fill us today. May the light of your love fill this room today. And may we be people who understand that Sunday is coming. And that even when things feel dark, you have already overcome them. We love you so much, Lord. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.